So Apple just came out with their new AR headset, the Apple Vision. But have you ever wondered how our current reality is actually an augmented reality? Well, today we have a very special episode with Barbara Tversky that dives into just that, how we construct our reality. And it's all about spatial cognition. We live in this 3D world, we take that world and compress it with language, and then we output those conceptual relations back into the built reality by building maps and lines and shared concepts. So yeah, our current reality is already this augmented reality. As always, let me know what you think of the episode and stay until the end to hear her overrated and underrated. Thanks. Hello, Reese's Pieces. I'm Reese, the founder of Root, and welcome to The Reese Show. I believe we can make a great Earth by 2100, an Earth that we're proud of. And we're here to work backwards from that good future. And so this podcast interviews experts to empower you, the listener, a serious and curious frontier person with both frameworks and agency to build a better future. And today, I'm excited to chat with Barbara Tversky. Barbara is a professor emerita of psychology at Stanford University. She's an expert in cognition and wrote the excellent book, Mind in Motion, How Action Shapes Thought. Barbara, thanks for being on the show and welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, excited to dive in. And, and Barbara is a great person because I think for me, I'm like a natural visual thinker, um, but I don't really know what's happening, you know, like how the sausage gets made. And so hopefully you'll be able to teach us how it all works and like how visual, and we're so used to the kind of the vocal world. And so it'll be great to dive into yeah, the importance of spatial cognition and like using those learnings to make our brain work better. Um, so I want to kind of start with spatial cognition generally, which is that, you know, language really is, it's so natural to us. Um, and so like, it's hard to understand how we're like, it's this weird water we swim in. And so maybe just to start for myself and the listeners, what is spatial cognition? So thank you. This will be a pretty long answer. I hope that's okay. Totally but okay. We all, all creatures, even viruses, live in a world, in a spatial world, and they need to move toward things that will sustain them and away from things that will harm them. So the basic decision that even viruses have to make is what to approach and what to avoid. And that basic decision is a decision about acting in space. And it comes with emotion. There are positive emotions towards things that will sustain us and negative emotions keeping us away from things that will harm us. So that basic decision, whether to approach or avoid, is replete with emotion. And it's the basis for spatial cognition. It's how do we behave or think about behaving the spaces we inhabit. And the human brain has um, many areas of the, of the cortex and below the th- cortex devoted to spatial thinking. It took a long time to evolve. Um, and there are many areas of the brain that, um, that are substrates for spatial thinking, for behaving in space, for remembering space, making cognitive maps of where things are relative to each other. And what's extraordinary in humans is those same strata that encode spatial thinking 
encode abstract thinking. So it, we can think about things that we like, don't like. We can think about people that are close to us, not about social spaces, about spaces in time um, and conceptual spaces. And those spaces are represented spatially in the brain. So that's the um, brain foundation for my claim that spatial thinking is the foundation of all thought. Yeah. A great deal of that is in hippocampus and neighboring areas. And again, in humans, these support thinking about just about everything. You want to keep your hippocampus alive. Don't let it shrink. Um, don't endanger it. It's important. Okay, I'll keep my hippo. I, I have a hippo, and I'll keep my hippo um, safe in my backyard, and I'll keep my hippocampus and my brain also safe. I think I love what you say there about it's a reminder for us that there's a that yeah we are you know we didn't just pop out of something it's like no we pop, there was apes before us and there were other mammals before us and that there's a yeah all animals have this approach avoid thing and so we all have a a spatial sense of the world and and we kind of we kind of understand spatially as we're like biking around and we like dodge something but this this bonus one which i think is really really interesting which is mapping the spatial world to the abstract world um and i know i kind of I know for me, again, personally, it's like I kind of do that naturally in some ways or it's like there's like graphs. You can think we had 2D graphs or like, um, I don't know, 3D graphs or like putting things. But tell us more about that intersection between abstract thought and, and spatial thought. So we see it in language. Um, all good things go up. When we feel good, we stand straight. When we feel bad, we slump. We can see that in other people instantaneously if they're up or down, so we even use up and down to describe mood. Um, it's there in all cultures, it's not just uh, English. We say someone's at the top of the heap or someone's fallen into a depression. Um, so we use that vertical dimension in language and in gestures I've just done, top of the heap, fallen into a depression. So it comes naturally in gesture. We do it without thinking about making gestures. They happen to us. And in fact, they tend to precede speech. But we have those metaphors in, in or ways of speaking in speech in every languages. Up is good, powerful, more. And down is hell, up is heaven. So down is the opposite. And it's probably tied to gravity, which is the major asymmetric force in the world. And so going up takes resources. It takes health, it takes money, um, it takes strength. We all grow taller, most of us, as we get older, then when we get really old, we start to shrink, we're less powerful. So it's, Fighting gravity, going against gravity, takes those resources. And that seems to account for the idea that up is in general good, more, um, and so forth. Our piles of money grow taller. So there are many reasons, but the fundamental one is probably gravity, why we have this conceptual mapping 
that up is good and down is bad. So economists seem to violate that. Bad things like inflation and unemployment go up. And we could say economists are perverse, um, but I'd rather not say that. And instead, it's because numbers go up. So inflation is measured in numbers, so is, um, so is unemployment, and the numbers go up. And if you have two co conflicting dimensions that are, are in, vying for the vertical, then often numbers win. And that's why the bad things, inflation and employment go up, unemployment seem to go up. Um, so horizontal is more neutral. There's nothing in the world that is asymmetric around horizontal. Our bodies are slightly asymmetrical. Most of us are right-handed and a few of us are left-handed. And that seems to play a role in value. There's been some work by Daniel Casasento that right-handed people tend to use their right hand for good things, their left hand for bad things, the reverse and left-handed. But it, other dimensions don't get mapped that way onto right and left. What seems to be um, a powerful determinant for asymmetries along the horizontal is reading and writing. So most European languages go left to right, and many um, Middle Eastern and, and Asian languages go right to left. And so certain things like increasing time or, or even increasing value go left to right in, in cultures that read and write left to right and seem to reverse in cultures that go that write and read right to left. But that gets complicated because even those cultures see standard graphing, which does go left to right. So I, I've given a complicated That's answer great. to that. But they, again, those the spatial thinking is evident in our language and in our gestures. And gestures are something that come early in life. Small babies point before they speak, but they make gradually make many other gestures. So gestures are a spontaneous component that expresses thought and also helps other people to understand thought. Yeah, I love it. It, it makes me think of... Well, a, when you start to think about visual think of, you know, and, and visual and spatial cognition, it's like not only it's not just gestures, you know, it's also kind of the words we're using and kind of mapping stuff into an abstract space in front of us. Um, and so it's kind of yeah, yeah, multidimensional in that way. And then in terms of the um, the mapping stuff, it makes me think of, you know, when I first heard these terms about like um, just being able to see our language for what it really is and really trying to see the water that we swim in, where you can imagine so much of politics or whatever is stuff where you take, you're like, oh, here's this, uh, I'll try to use a neutral term, here's an immigrant that's coming into the United States or whatever, and you can use a negative valence term and say, oh, that's an illegal alien or whatever, or you can use a positive valence term and say, oh, that's a, um, yeah, that's a, that's a, um, undocumented, you know, immigrant or whatever. And so you can kind of, when you start to see people use the positive and negative forms, you can start to be like, oh, wow, 
this is, you know, you, you can start to see kind of the emotional valence going up and down with language that people are using. I think similarly for me, it's been helpful to, um, in, in your explanation there is like, once we start to see like, oh, okay, the words that we're each using, you can kind of add an additional layer on that, which is the spatial layer. And you're like, oh, here's kind of the visual metaphors that we're using as we're speaking about what we're speaking about. I want to ask a question about the 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 um, x-axis there, because I, I agree with your y-axis stuff. I feel like for me, the x-axis is so much time. It's like, it's very often time. Is that, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of work on that, that time seems to be horizontal. And we did some work showing that actually loaded variables, variables that are loaded in valence or value tend to be mapped on the vertical and that neutral things like time t seem to be mapped um, on the horizontal. And that's again true in many languages. And you see it in the prepositions we're going forward, we're approaching the holidays or the holidays are behind us. We're using spatial ways to talk about time. And on the whole, for most languages, it seems to be horizontal. It's as if we were going on a timeline or that we were on a timeline and things were coming to us. Um, and it, there's been a lot of work on those two metaphors and some work showing that there's also a, a vertical way of mapping time. We have that in calendars. Many calendars start the early part of the month is up and the later part of the month or year is down. So first, the first things we encounter are up and the last things we encounter are down. So we do, and Chinese in particular, but other languages use an up and down. For time, it's more unusual. But yes, we tend to see time. Time marches. It's yeah. again on the ground. We're walking on the ground. And it, it, we found that children from, uh, we examine children who grow up in English-speaking environments, that grow up in Arabic-speaking environments, that grow up in Hebrew-speaking environments. So preschoolers who aren't reading yet for the most part and have them map time, temporal events, breakfast, lunch, dinner. And we found most of them used a horizontal line, um, a few vertical, but mostly horizontal. And for the most part, it went in reading order. Um, but again, it, there are these variations that happen yeah. in order. I love that. It's it's funny. It's like, yeah, you got that like weird kid in the corner who did it, you know, like top to bottom. It's like, okay, that's it. That's it. That person's mind. That's going to be a creative. That's going to be an art art person. Um, it makes me think too about there's this uh, good book called The Unfolding of Language, which gets at the preposition thing that you just chat about, which is that as language began to emerge and who knows about all the stuff you, you've known more than I do, we, there was a... Um, we took, we, we just had kind of nouns and verbs. Um, and then we had, and then we'd say like, oh, um, that, you know, the, the, something being in, in front of or behind me, you know, those things went from a, you should just talk about your butt as you're behind, you know? Um, but then you're like, no, you can use the behind idea to talk about something that is behind you. And so um, we can start to, or like, you know, like I want, or I will becomes these kind of um, future facing things that you're going to go towards. And so it's like, we start in this kind of simple 
uh, spatially organized world of nouns and verbs, and then it becomes the prepositions and all these other things um, as those kind of physical metaphors kind of infest the rest of our language. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Like the kind of how um, how language itself evolved with you know with spatial cognition? You know. So I, I it's awfully hard to study how language evolved. Yeah. yeah. Written languages began way after people were speaking. And we can't really know what kind of language people used um, ages ago, prehistory. And again, there was no writing. There's no way of knowing by knowing DNA. Um, there's a little bit that's known by studying e languages spoken in the Amazon and other places where people haven't been schooled. And there, it, mostly what's been studied there is not so much whether, what parts of speech, because those languages seem to have all parts of speech, um, it, but numbers. And there's some language being studied in deaf communities that where the speaker, the people weren't exposed to sign and made up languages. They made up signed languages. So what concepts come easy? For them and what don't and i'm not up to date on that um, work but a book that just came out by susan golden meadow reports on her research with home sign and what concepts tended to to be worked through in language before others um, i don't there must be something there on when parts of speech evolve. And my hunch is similar to yours that because we're pointing to things, nouns are, um, and we can enact um, verbs to a certain extent, but it's harder. To, it, it, prepositions are relations between one thing and another. So conceptually, they're, they're denser. Um, and it might be the case that they come later. There's been a lot of work on how prepositions map to space. And they differ across languages enormously. So one of the mistakes that people make in learning a new language is not mapping the prepositions correctly, because they're, they're often very idiosyncratic to languages. Some have many. And even Korean has one for fitting tightly the way a ring would or fitting loosely the way a caftan would. Um, we don't make that distinction in English. So there are, and again, those prepositions do map to space and to spatial relations. Yeah, but exactly. Map differently in different languages. That's cool. Yeah, it, it makes me think that there's like a, um, there's like, you can imagine a level one reality where you're just living your life, not really thinking about how you're speaking. A level two reality is one where you can see spatial cognition in all of the languages that in, in all of our language. And then level three is like being able to do a cross language, which is something that, you know, like, oh, how does Korean work? How does, you know, and, and being able to like, to kind of um, find some core concepts there. And I think, yeah, it's a really interesting, it, the other thing I want to chat about here is you have this great concept. I think we've been, we've been chatting about this kind of matrix that you, you can see of when you start to like see the world and language as this spatial thing but then you have this great these great two little kind of phrases in your book about we put the world in our mind 
and we also put our mind in the world. And so there's this kind of, in addition to it all being like existing in our minds, there's also this like weird kind of um, feedback loop with reality itself. And so tell us more about what you mean by those two statements and how that changed us. So it, I'll get to that because it's a, but let me just add about space in language. Yeah. We often say our minds are going in circles, our thoughts are going in circles or zigzags. So we do think of thinking in spatial ways, um, or our minds are going all over in many different directions. And the, the underlying structure there is often networks, which are how do you get from one thought to another thought? And again, that has parallels in how do we get from one place to another place? So again, the way we think about thinking and the directions our thoughts go is very much the way we think about the way our bodies move in space. Um, I couldn't get a handle on that. I couldn't grasp it. So our hands are going to do different things than our feet. And humans have unique hands, as we know. Um, our hands can play pianos beautifully, violins beautifully, make beautiful art. They can do delicate things that other creatures' hands can do. And again, we use our hands as a way of thinking about thinking, um, I, not being able to grasp something. So I wanted to just point that out, that the language is embedded in with with the way we talk about thinking and the way we talk about talking. And much of that comes from things we do with our hands and things we do with our feet in space. Yes, I love that. Let me just reflect that for a second before you do the next thing, which is, yeah, it's like an amazing, the way we talk about language itself is, and, and, and ideas themselves are, are spatial. You know, and, and, and it's uh, ideas you can grasp and, oh, that was kind of a wandering conversation or whatever. And so, yo, know, these ideas are kind of going off the chains or whatever. And so you can kind of, you see it all. Um, yeah, the way we talk about it is also, it, I mean, everything has to be spatial. And so the way you talk about it also has to be spatial. Okay, thank you for the double click there. Yeah, so tell us about this world in the mind, mind in the world thing. Yeah. So a world in the mind, again, how do we represent space and the, the neuroscientists have done a beautiful work in the last 20, 30, even 40 years on showing how we, the world is represented in hippocampus and nearby areas, hands in other areas, but that we have a great deal of the brain um, dedicated to, to representing what the outside world is like and how to navigate it. Um, so it, half the cortex is spatial. So and spatial, it, blind people can have excellent spatial cognition because it's spatial, not just visual. And they navigate in other ways with landmarks that are visual, but might be sound or smell or texture on the ground. Also using time, you pointed out the nice parallels between space and time, and there's lots more to say about that. Um, the mental maps of rats, for example, are established by movement and time. So it, 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 time and movement are right there 
in our representations, internal representations of space. Humans have the advantage of using language to create spatial representations. We don't have to experience traveling in Rome. I can build a mental map of Rome just from descriptions of it or maps of it. And I often do that when I travel. I study a map and I read descriptions in order to know what I'll be experiencing when I experience it. So that's putting the world in the mind. Humans make maps. And maps go way back into antiquity. You can find remnants of them going back 10,000 years, even farther, long before written language was there. Um, maps in the sand probably went back farther. They just aren't preserved. Uh, so we've put the world in our minds into the world in the form of maps, um, rudimentary ones. Um, and, and more exact ones for eons. Um, again, they go way back. What else do we put in the world? Again, our evidence often is, is cave paintings or petroglyphs. These were very difficult to create. I mean, you have to have cave paintings, you have to know paints that will stay on the walls. You're going in in the dark. There are um, dangers there uh, because if there are no real paths and they, that you can suddenly have um, fall off a ledge. So you needed light in some way to carry in there. So making cave paintings is a huge effort. And, and what they put in cave paintings then had to be significant. Uh, same with petroglyphs, you have to carve in stone, and that's a great deal of effort. So all of those ways, or carving pieces of wood, uh, which was also a way to preserve maps, or stringing bamboo together, another way of, all of that takes great effort and great knowledge. So, but we, people have done it for millennia, and there must be reasons why people did it. So it, 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 those are the spatial things are important parts of our lives. What else did we put in the world? We put images of people, often people in hunts. So stick men with bows and arrows you can find all over the world, or stick people with bows and arrows. On a hunt, you find animals. Again, they were important sources of protein to people. So you find putting our mind in the world went way back. There's also number, not number as we know it with numerals, but tallies, and tallies go way back and, and all over the world. One-to-one -one correspondences between something and a, a mark on a tally. And that Creates, that takes a great deal of abstraction, thinking of, thinking of things just as one example, one person or one bushel of wheat, and not thinking about the wheat or the person, abstracting it to a single entity and, and stringing together entities, um, takes abstraction. And again, tallies went way back, and they're out there in the world representing things. So we've put our mind in the world for generations, more than we can count. 
but we can see the mind and the world in cities everywhere. There are lines separating lanes for cars. There are lines for buses, lines for bicycles, lines where you can park, lines where you can't park. There are signs where you can turn, signs where you can't turn, stoplights, zebra, um, zebra stripes for, for pedestrians where you must stop for them. So we've essentially turned the world into a diagram um, and that, uh, that allows us to move safely and prevents us from moving in places where it, we would endanger each other or other things. But it, we're hardly aware of the fact that we're moving in a diagram, living in a diagram um, more and more. We've designed the world. Um, and part of that is not just building homes and streets and hospitals and stores. We put diagrams on the streets and in the in the this close air that um, guide our movements and yeah. control our movements. So the mind in the world is there. It's there in in diagrams. It's there in photographs. It's there. You can't read a textbook without having diagrams and visualizations, it's there in writing. Um, and writing began as pictographs or ideographs. It, the alphabet was invented only once. Yeah. That most languages began in this pictographic way. You run out of pictographs quite quickly. You, there are verbs are problematic, nouns are easier. So eventually, people, instead of developing this visual correspondence, thought of developing a sound correspondence, hence the alphabet. And again, the alphabet was invented once, but adapted to many, many different languages. Thank God. Thank God they invented it. You know, I'm, I'm glad, you know, that whoever that, you know, that, that's that, uh, that random person was. Um, I think it's a great over, and I love thinking about it. It's like, there's a, and just to kind of reflect what you said there, there's like, we're living in the world and what and you can imagine the world without us is just doing its thing you know there's trees and there's random things or there's the earth um, but then what we do is we kind of take that all as input into our brains and so we're kind of putting the world into our mind and that's both reflected uh, like neurobiologically you know in terms of the structures that it turns into in terms of nested hierarchies or whatever um, and and so that kind of those those concepts and that that physical world out there is actually put into our brains and then what we do is then we kind of externalize it again and we say okay great here's like this here's what i understood the world to be here's a map of it here's what rome looks like on a map or whatever um and so there's this like yeah taking it in and then pushing out like kind of our our kind of compressed abstractized representation of whatever we took in um and then in addition to that like seeing our world whatever whenever we move around the world these days or i'm in my room right now it's like you know, my room is not some kind of um, white box, you know, that the room is full of um, there's a thing on the door that says to turn it, you know, that has like a little knob and there's, um, a, you know, the, the window is a square so I can look through it or whatever. And so and so all this thinking of everything as a diagram that tells us like where we should go, um, that that is uh, that's kind of uh, the world we live in is this kind of manufactured um, spatial reality. Is that <laughs> did you have any thoughts on that reflection? So yeah, no, absolutely. And I can go in a supermarket in Japan and know how to purchase. 
Yeah. You know, I know it's going to be organized in a certain way, and there'll probably be a cash register or a self register somewhere where I can figure out how to pay. If it's some of it, will have icons which help me. It, often it will have a translation, but I can figure out those things: how to buy tickets on trains in various places, and so forth. Now there are. Our cultures that do things differently. I went to China just before the pandemic and couldn't use American credit cards, and there was almost no cash. So, and so I needed Chinese accounts with a Chinese bank and so forth. Things I didn't have time to do, but for Chinese and they're a third of the world, they have a wonderful system for getting through and. Again, much of it is organized and diagrammed, so I could get to some of that. I just might hit barriers yeah. at, at some point. But yeah, I mean, the, we have redesigned the world and the spaces that we need to live in. Nobody's seen a gorilla make a map in the sand or a bonobo. They do gesture, but the gestures are not nearly as complicated or expressive as ours. As my understanding is they're often for grooming, that you want someone else to groom, or for sex, or for food. You want the mother to share whatever she's eating. But they, and even pointing, they will apparently point um, large apes but their conspecifics don't necessarily follow the point. And yeah. following the point is really, for caretakers and children, is a huge boon because it does bootstrap language. It also bootstraps joint attention. If I point to something and you look at it, we're thinking about the same thing. And maybe the baby is indicating it's a toy they want. Maybe it's indicating it's something they want to eat. Maybe it's indicating a place they want to be taken. Um, but it, it, if I follow the baby's point or vice versa, then um, we're, we have mutual understanding. We're communicating. Yeah. So it, it, that kind of spatial communication forms the basis for language. And it forms the basis for society. And we humans aren't faster or maybe even smarter. We're certainly not bigger or stronger or faster than many of the um, animals that we evolved with and might be interested in consuming us. The, the, our competitive advantage is working together. Yeah. And that in and having these gestures and joint attention form the link between caretakers and children and later form the basis of cooperation. Um, that's hugely important in protecting us. We can't live alone. Yeah, we, I love that. I think that's a great. Um... We, yeah, we need each other. And, and depend on each other. So forming those social links, which are initially spatial, are critical. Yeah, it's like a shared, uh, like a, and there's a book called, um, 
crucial conversations which is about like it's kind of like a non-violent communication like how to have good conversations with people book and it talks about making a shared third rail with someone when you're like if you and i were like uh, having a you know an emotional argument or whatever we like, we like try to agree on the facts of like what happened or whatever and so it's like and so this like shared agreement of this like shared map that we can both point at either through pointing and diagrams and all these things then allows us to do this like massive coordination thing that uh, humans are so good at so i want to ask you a question kind of switching gears here for a second to um so we know there's this spatial reality that we live in. We've taken the 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 red pill or the blue pill, the red pill. We've taken the red pill and we're you know we're we're spatially pilled now. Um, how what should we do? Like, how do I get better at spatial reasoning and cognition? How how what to do? You know, you know, it's like everything. Practice, uh, paying attention, looking. Since I got interested in gesture. Uh, I look at gesture everywhere, and and I, I really see how important it is in coordinating. So in, in finding your way around the world, pay attention to what you're seeing, what the landmarks are, when you come back. Um, it, science depends a great deal on spatial thinking, graphs, uh, what's close to what, what's interacting with what social behavior um, but in all those things practice helps now a lot of games are are spatial so it's it's built in to the way children grow up or much of it is built in i know i used to give my kids um, maps when we were traveling in the car and ask them to be the navigators um, so and have them draw maps when they were little of their rooms and all that is fun, and and uh, building Lego is fun. All I mean the games that kids play, blocks, all of that is great fun, and they learn to manipulate things in space, and that learning eventually gets internalized, and so it it spurs imaginations once you have all that inside your head and represented inside your head you can use it in thinking and creating and imagining so the more experiences that we have with puzzles and with with um, board games uh, and so which again are spatial uh, and and creating things all of that helps our spatial thinking and in turn forms the basis for the abstract thinking so that we can, and even clinical psychologists will have people make these mental maps, social maps. Who are you close to? Who are you not close to? So you map that out. You map out what are your goals? What's close to you and your goals temporally or, or feasibly? And what seems a little distant? And how do I arrange those in space relative to me? How might I see someone else's perspective? That perspective taking becomes crucial in any kind of social interaction, political interaction. So thinking about my perspective, but thinking about what's there, how are they seeing the world? What's close to them? What's not, what annoys them? What's their perspective? And then what's the perspective overhead of the whole organization I'm in, how do people relate to each other, and ideas relate to each other. So that kind of mapping that for some of us almost comes automatic, but doing it purposefully 
it can be a big boon. And, and just asking that, how would X see these things? Not how do you see X and why are you angry at X? How does X see it? Um, that perspective taking is, is again crucial to both navigating the, the real world and navigating the social world. Uh, and yeah, I love that. It's a great, it makes me think of, um, it's like, how, you know, there's, you know, the answer to like, oh, how should we use spatial, you know, cognition in, in our daily lives? It's kind of like the, the answer is not, oh, well, to train your hippocampus, you need to do this specific. It's like, no, 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 no. What you need to do is you need to um, make maps, you know, just kind of map stuff. And, and even this is inspiring me to be like, yeah, as I think about, it kind of makes me think of like, whatever, like, this is like a bullet journal or whatever that I'm taking notes in. And it's like, it is a, and I'll often do some mapping stuff for like the book I'm writing or whatever. I'll kind of like, what is actually happening with this? But but to do it with my own um, with my own life, who am I close to? Who am I not close to? What are my goals? What are my not goals? And to kind of, instead of just to like put it all in like bullet form or to just Google doc it, it's like, no, get a, get a nice piece of uh, paper or a whiteboard or whatever and really kind of, um, yeah, do the mapping thing. Because once you do that, once you create the diagram of the self and the diagram of your life or whatever, then you can start to, um, then you have a mental it's kind of something you can quote unquote grasp onto, you know, that then you can use um, for other things. So that is, uh, I think, be a mapper is always what I'm hearing from you, which is good, good advice. I want to ask you kind of, as we get into pseudo rapish mode here, um, one is for our listeners, man, you have these amazing, these nine laws of cognition, um, which are so good. And as I read them, I was just like, oh my God, all these are bangers. Like they're just like, they were so good. I was just like, um, and so I guess I want to ask you, um, maybe what I'm going to do is I'm going to read out all nine of them. And then I'm going to ask you to say your favorite one. And then the one you think is kind of the, the you're going to have to choose your killed children, you know, like if you, if you were to, you know, choose your favorite, then choose your least favorite. That's what you're going to do. So I'm going to just read them out. Um, the first one is there are no benefits without costs. The second is action molds perception. Uh, the third is feeling comes first. The fourth is the mind can override perception. The fifth is cognition mirrors perception. The sixth, which we've talked about a lot today, is spatial thinking is the foundation of abstract thought. Seven is the mind fills in missing information. Eight is when the thought over when thought overflows the mind, the mind puts it into the world. And then nine is when we organize the stuff in the world the way we or, or sorry we organize those stuff in the world the way we organize stuff in the mind. And so we kind of chat about a couple of those like number six about spatial thinking, number eight about when thought overflows the mind it goes into the world, number nine about organizing stuff in the world the way we organize stuff in the mind. So there's a lot of kind of the feeling comes first one stuff. So they're all kind of juicy and good. What's your uh, what of the nine? Yeah, which was your what's your favorite child? So I, I'm going to turn that back to you. And which one would do you think we haven't discussed that might be worth Yeah, no, that's a good that's a good question. I would love to discuss um I would love to discuss feeling comes first. Well feeling comes first, I said at the outset, and that's we the basic decision is approachable. Yeah. And, okay. and approach is positive, feel good. I'm excited for that. Avoid is is I'm afraid of that. I don't want to go there. It might harm me. What's interesting about that, and one of the first things I ever learned in psychology is, for humans at least, and probably even for viruses um, or amoeba, um, those can be mixed. 
you know, there are things that I have uh, want to approach and want to avoid. You know, I mean, going down to the or going starting with temptations, like wouldn't it be wonderful to eat those delicious looking desserts? And then maybe I shouldn't. Um, uh, and so we have those approach avoidance situations and inevitably in space and in real life we're conflicted. And that is almost an existential um, dilemma that humans have and have to deal with all their lives in, in many ways. So even small children, you know, the, the electric outlet is terribly, you just want to put your fingers in it, right? There are holes there, and it, it, they're just ripe for fingers. And you somehow have to e either cover them up or teach a child that, no, don't put your fingers in there. So the world is replete with those dilemmas of things that, that we want to approach but might harm us. And that we have to deal with in many ways all our lives. So I made that simple the approach avoidance, but, um, and sometimes it is simple. You're, you're a small child being picked up from nursery school and your parent comes and you run toward them. But even those by the kids, time kids are two or three, they want to go back to their friends too. So that becomes conflicted. So I, I made it a little, and again, it's spatial. Do I run to the mother or the father? or the grandmother who's picking you up, or do I go back with the kids? And you often see people wavering. Yeah. So that, um, that again, becomes, um, yeah, and I, I oversimplified it. I mean, the mind oversimplifies all the time, and that I didn't put, it could be a 10th cognitive, a law that we tend to categorize instead of seeing things on dimensions. It makes things much easier. There are good people and bad people, Democrats and Republicans, foreigners and, and citizens. And we tend, and w without seeing gradations. And in our era, that is seeing gradations is essential and perspectives taking is essential. And again, they're both spatial. You know, we think of things as on a line and we don't want to group them into, into good and bad. We want to see that people are essentially both good and bad. And we want to, so it, 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 those are spatial issues and perspective taking. So if I had to leave with kind of messages for, for, larger activities than just navigating space, but navigating life, um, those would be some, and there are lessons we have to learn repeatedly. It's just too easy to yeah. some things, a table or a chair, and, um, and ignore the fact that some things can function quite well as both. Um, yes. I love that. I love. I love that kind of example of well, a. Yeah, thinking about feelings as, yeah, that 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 the core thing is yeah the approach. You know, there's feelings like happy and sad, but it's all like the the approach avoid is a really good way to think about. Yeah, that those things come up within you all the time. Oh, I'm 
we're excited. You know, we both approached each other for this. I, I emailed you and then you emailed me back and we're like, great, let's do this, you know? Um, and, and then we avoided, I don't know, the rats in our basement or something. And so, yeah, that, that kind of our life is full of these things that we're being pulled to or away from. Um, and then similarly, yeah, I totally agree on the seeing things as gradients versus in yeah, our mind is so desirous to kind of categorize and simplify all the time. It's just doing that. But then, as you said, I think doing it with simple things, where it's like, it might be hard for me to think about, you know, my ex-girlfriend or whatever as a nice person or, you know, but, but it's, it's easier if I take, um, it, you know, to start something like a table and a chair and just to have a little bit more of a flexible mindset, like, you know, what? that chair could also be a table and that table could be a chair. And so to start having that kind of flexible mind um, around kind of other things in your life is good. So I want to ask you one kind of final question here, which is a couple of these overrated and underrated. And so I'm going to say a, um, a thing and then you're just going to tell me whether you think it's overrated or underrated um, and then give me one uh, one sentence uh, or, you know, one sentence on why. And the first one Apple just came out with their new Apple Vision, you know, um, VR, AR thing. Do you think that VR and AR are, is underrated or overrated? So, again, I'm going to resist simplification. Um, I'm more excited about VR, about AR, augmented reality. And it, it's partly I've been working with people doing that, but it's more that I can see the potential. I go to an archaeological site. And my augmented reality will tell me, will show me what it looked like. Or I go to a museum and I see a painting and my augmented reality will give me other paintings of the same painter, some historical context and so forth, whatever I want. But I'm still looking at the painting. I go to a sports event and um, I mean, television does this a bit now. Um, but it'll show me other cases where this batter struck someone, it struck a, a home run. It'll show me statistics about that batter, about the pitcher. But I'm still enjoying watching the game, and I'm getting more information while I'm watching that. I'm trying to put together Lego or put together my kid's bicycle, and augmented reality gives me instructions. So I'm more excited about that. Virtual reality takes me away from the world. Um, and that's great for gaming. It can also work a bit for social situations, although the meta experiment was pretty much a failure on that. Um, but we're using something close to it. When During the pandemic, many of us had Zoom meetings with family that we couldn't see. And, and those sorts of things might have been more fun if we'd had a fuller immersive experience from that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, but so as what I'm hearing is, yeah, VR, probably overrated, AR, underrated. Um, beautiful. Well, with that, Barbara, thank you so much for coming on today. And just as a re reminder for listeners, A, definitely check out her book. It's called Mind in Motion, How Actions Shapes Thought. And it's, yeah, if you're interested at all in the stuff that you chat about today about the kind of yeah spatial cognition and especially getting deeper on the kind of um all the studies and the the science and all of that there's a lot of really good stuff uh, of that in the book barbara do you have anything else to say uh to our listeners today I, one thing one thread from before on yeah. um, the categorization versus dimension yeah i mean language categorizes so it's built in and it has to we have we want few words so we can communicate efficiently but it, it it's a little bit of a, 
of an issue of, of language and keeping things a little spatial keeps things keeps things truer to what they really are and right so maybe i'll leave you with that with another Wait, that's one. that's <laughs> juicy let me just to make sure i understood that yeah that it's a any kind of language like if i take an abstract if i take all these cats that i know in the world and i turn them language turns them into a cat a single cat thing um and so that's kind of a binary thing while that other thing is a dog or whatever you know um and and that is helpful most of the time and is true most of the time but um if we want to we want to stay in this reality that is more kind of closer to reality in terms of its spatial, instead of taking the real world and then kind of compressing that information into to vocal language, we can take the real world, almost keep it as the real world by keeping it spatial. And then that might be more true. Is that, is that right? Sure. I mean, that's one. And we want to use both. Use both. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, don't necessarily keep, keep talking to people. Um, well, beautiful. Barbara, thank you for this. It's awesome to just hear your, um, yeah, you have, you have a great mindset on all this stuff. And it's cool that you're just like sharing this knowledge with people. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and thank you listeners for listening today. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. If you like the show, please give us a five-star podcast review or subscribe on YouTube. And if you'd like to chat about this episode with a community of amazing, smart, ambitious, divergent people, come on by and join our Discord. You can find it at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. And then finally, if you'd like to contribute to these ideas being shared more widely in society, you can support the podcast production team at patreon.com slash Landmark. That's patreon.com slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. Thanks, and see you here for the next episode. Bye.